1: All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Hope all of you guys are having a great week so far. We are live on AMP. So if you're listening on the podcast feeds or watching on YouTube, don't forget that AMP is the very first place that you guys can get these shows. We are continuing our player rankings today with number four, Kevin. Durant. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to the volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason LT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And last but not least, if for whatever reason you miss one of these videos and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish, don't forget you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. All right, let's talk some basketball. So In my opinion, KD's become one of the more underrated players in the league, and there's a bunch of different reasons for that, right? Like, it's the classic conundrum we see all the time that I've been dealing with with the LeBron situation there in the late teens, early 20s, where it's like every time there's a new up-and-coming player, we always are really quick to shelve the guys who have been doing it. You know, at a bigger stage, at a higher level for a very long time. I think it's just a, a human nature thing where people are just quick to try to embrace the new. I think that's part of it. I think the way Katie acts on Twitter, which I don't really have a problem with, I think that rubs some people the wrong way. And then I think overreactions to a couple of playoff runs, which really weren't that bad, but maybe don't line up with... Kevin Durant's like personal standard, right? particularly the Celtics series from two years ago. I don't think people realize just how good KD was in this playoff run, even though his jump shot wasn't falling. But as I kind of look at KD and where he is in the league right now, even after what's been a couple of underwhelming playoff runs, I have a top three in the league that involves Steph, Giannis, and Jokic in some order, right? I think those guys are all a slight level above everyone else just in terms of their consistency in the regular season the last three years and their playoff success in the last three years. I don't think anybody can complain with that. All three of them have won finals MVPs in the last three years. All three of them have been pretty consistently available and great in the regular season over the last three years. I think those three guys are clearly at least deserving of the recognition of being above the rest of the field. But as I look through the, the rest of the group, the superstar group, right, which is, you know, KD, Embiid, and then um, Anthony Davis, Jason Tatum, uh, Jimmy Butler, LeBron James, Luka Doncic, Kawhi Leonard, and Devin Booker, as I look at the rest of that group, those guys are all really close, but I also think KD is clearly the best player in that group of guys. So for me, of all the different decisions I had to make in my top 12, all of them were really hard. But there were two of them that were very, very easy for me. It was very easy for me to put Jokic at number one. That was like the, the very first pick I made. It's just as, as clear-cut, uh, deserving-of-the-crown type of season as you could possibly put together. And then KD at four. Because among the guys that aren't in that at like recent finals MVP tier, I think KD is clearly better than the rest of those guys. So I didn't really have a lot of trouble with that particular decision. We'll see. I'm interested to see how you guys feel about it. But to me, I think KD is clearly the best of the rest in the superstar tier. Now, why is that? Why do I feel that strongly about KD? Well, since leaving Golden State, he has been the most efficient volume scorer in the NBA. Twenty nine points per game. And nobody in the NBA has been able to beat his 66% true shooting percentage. 66% true shooting percentage over a three-season span just shy of 30 points per game. Steph Curry hasn't been able to beat that. Joel Embiid hasn't been able to beat that. The only guy who's come close in terms of of efficiency is Nikola Jokic, and he scores at a significantly lower volume in the span since KD left Golden State. He's only at about 25 points per game. So KD, come, like, regardless of how you feel about what happened in the last two playoff runs, especially when you couple it with his playoff resume before that, he is the best scorer in the NBA, still. At volume, at absurd efficiency. And then he couples that with being an above-average playmaker, an above-average defensive player, and he can plug and play with any roster in the league because of his versatility offensively and what he can do on and off the basketball. So to put it simply, he has the best top end skill out of anybody in that 4 to 12 range and he doesn't have a significant weakness whereas all the players beneath him do. Katie has a couple of weaknesses and we'll talk about them and I I think that they're uh you know pretty standard for players of his particular archetype and we'll get to that when we get there. But compared to the guys be- be- beneath him in this 4 to 12 range, his weaknesses are... Are much easier to manage and 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 kind of like uh, uh, build into the scheme of a basketball team than what you see with some of these other players. So that's why I have him at number four. Let's do a quick season recap. He played in 47 games this season. Now that's one thing with KD that you kind of have to add as an important footnote here. He has pretty consistently suffered significant injuries in the regular season that have limited the amount of games he's been able to play, but. This has not been a situation where he hasn't been able to get it together and be healthy in time for the playoffs. Now, I would argue that uh, particularly in the last two seasons, he had about a month going into the 2022 playoff run, and he had about, what, I think like five games going into the 2023 playoff run. So, like In each of the last two seasons, he's gone into the postseason still kind of on a ramp up. From an injury. And I do think that's an important context when we talk about his playoff struggles, because again, especially with pull up shooting, so much of it is about being in such a good groove with your rhythm and your conditioning. And that being disrupted can have a significant effect on your ability to knock down shots. But I do think it's important context with KD. He has suffered some regular season availability problems that have not manifested in any sort of missed playoff time, which I think if you're going to miss games, the regular season is the time to do it, right? In 47 games this year, 29 points, 7 rebounds, and 5 assists, 68% true shooting. Again, there's nobody in the league that scores uh, in, in, in terms of volume and efficiency the way that Kevin Durant does. Here's the play type data, and I'm, I'm going with all from Brooklyn here because the eight regular season games he played in Phoenix, uh, just too small of a sample, and he was pretty banged up in, during that stretch. So I'm just going to zoom in on his shot creation data from when he was in Brooklyn. Absolutely off the charts, half-court static shot creation data. Look at this. In pick-and-roll situations, the Nets scored 360 points on 291 Kevin Durant pick-and-rolls. Think about how insane that is. That's a point and a quarter per possession. points per possession. For perspective, Luca was the best volume pick-and-roll guy in the league this year at 1.15. Now, obviously lower volume, but in large part because of injuries. But to give you an idea, in the smaller sample size, which, you know, not a non-existent sample size, still almost 300 pick-and-rolls, KD was scoring or generating points a full tenth of a point per possession, better than Luka Doncic, who was the best volume pick-and-roll ball handler in the league this year. That's insane. His passing was the big one that stood out to me all season long. The teams that were guarding Kevin Durant in pick and pick-and-roll when he was with Brooklyn were being outrageously aggressive. They were consistently defending the action three-on-two, constantly trapping and blitzing and hard-hedging and all these different things, just doing everything they could to get the ball out of his hands, and he's so damn tall that he could make all the reads out of it. It was particularly this like kind of looping pass over the top to the roll man or a quick bounce pass. He could make the skip pass to the shooters. He was just picking teams apart in pick and roll and doing it really with a, a selection of players which were good, not great. Like He was doing it with a bunch of league average role player type guys, right? And I, I thought it was honestly some of the most impressive individual shot creation that I saw during the regular season last year. If you remember, before Kevin Durant's injury... I said on this show that I thought he was playing better basketball than anybody in the league. And it was his injury that derailed what could have been an MVP campaign for it, which would have been a wild turn of events after what happened during that summer um, but I do think again, like this is why I say like I think Kevin Durant's become a little bit underrated. And I understand why. The injuries in the regular season keep you out of the frame of mind for a while. Suddenly, people start to heavily focus on the guys that are on the court playing every day. He's had a couple of playoff runs that haven't quite me- meshed up with his standard. I get it. But this guy is so freaking insanely good at basketball, and I feel like the basketball world has forgotten. And I think people are making a mistake there because the dude's got mileage left in those legs. And I don't want it to be one of those situations where things come together and he wins a title and everyone's like, oh, look at this, Kevin Durant's back. And it's like, he's been here the whole damn time. And I think think we've just been overlooking him a little bit. 1.04 points per isolation. 13th out of 25 players to run at least 250. Not his best isolation season. 1.14 points per post-up. Seventh out of 43 players to attempt at least 100. So very, very good post-up season for him. Really all fueled by the simple fact that he is the most efficient shot maker in the NBA. It's not particularly close either. 55% effective field goal percentage on catch-and-shoot jumpers. That's really good. 60% effective field goal percentage on pull-up jumpers. That's like freaking outrageous. That's second best in the league behind Steph Curry. And uh, in terms of individual field goal percentage, it's much higher. Steph just takes a bunch of pull-up threes. That kind of gives him a 1% edge there. KD was 55% on floaters and 79% in the restricted area, which is amazingly efficient. But KD only made 83 shots in the restricted area all season. That's only 1.8 per game. To give you some perspective, there were 202 players in the NBA this season who made more shots in the restricted area than Kevin Durant. So I would say that if you had to find one particular weakness for Kevin Durant in his game, he does not generate nearly as much rim pressure as his peers, which can somewhat limit his effectiveness when his jump shot is not falling. It's it's I wouldn't call it a crippling weakness, but it's definitely the weakest point in his particular game. And what ends up happening is when his pull-up jump shot is not falling, he can experience some limited impact. I think you saw that a lot more in the Celtics series than you did this year in the Denver series. I was really impressed by Kevin Durant this particular season in that uh, Denver series with his jumper not falling, and him responding by starting to attack the rim more. And I think I think you primarily saw that in free throw attempts. And he generated a shit ton of free throw attempts in that series that helped bolster his offensive production when his shot wasn't falling. So now this is the the real uh, the real like drop off point for KD in these last two postseasons. So this is a guy who pretty consistently in the last couple years has been about sixty percent in effective field goal percentage on pull up jump shots in the regular season. from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. In the Boston Celtics series, he shot in the low 30s in field goal percentage on pull-up jump shots. In the this particular postseason run, um, he went down from 60% effective field goal percentage to 45% effective field goal percentage. Pretty significant drop-off. And I think this is the reason why people got off the KD bandwagon. They're like, oh, he started missing jump shots. And again, you got to uh, accept it for what it is, which is a small sample size A little bit of variance. Like, again, guys, there's going to be some drop-off. It's more physical. It's more intense. There's better defenses. So, yeah, I would expect his effective field goal percentage on on pull-up jumpers to drop from 60 to maybe 52 to 53, right? But I think we can all agree that KD was missing a lot of shots that he normally makes. And it wasn't really that bad. 45% in effective field goal percentage, which we consider, again, a massive drop-off for KD. Paul George shot 48% for the entire regular season on pull-up jump shots. So what we consider to be a massive drop-off for KD is only slightly below where one of his significant peers in the league is during a good scoring regular season for him. And again, it wasn't even as bad as it looked. This postseason, I think you guys would probably be surprised to know that KD averaged 29-9 and 6 on 60% true shooting. How many players in the league can even do that? And that's KD's shots not falling postseason. 60% true shooting, 29 points per game with nine rebounds and six assists. Like I th- I, I I think I think again, this is the same problem we've had with LeBron for a while, too. Where we become so accustomed to this, like, kind of like vaunted expectation of what their ceiling is, which we've kind of mytho, like, like we've we've turned into something mythological. That all of a sudden, when there's some sort of drop off, which a lot of times is just a change. Like, KD is better at manufacturing points by pressuring, uh, like downhill pressure and drawing fouls. He's better at that now than he's ever been. So even if there was a version of this story in the past where he made more jump shots, like this is a damn effective postseason. Same thing with LeBron. It's like, oh, his jumper wasn't falling this year. LeBron, you're right. LeBron had a bad jump shooting season, but he's like as good scoring out of the post. He's better scoring out of the post than he's ever been. And so even even in this like limited version of LeBron, he was still successfully dissecting defenses in the playoffs. So it's all relative. And yeah. Relative to KD's absolute best postseasons, it wasn't his best. But as I actually look at the list of guys, like Anthony Davis led his team to the Western Conference Finals. That was not a perfect postseason. Very up and down offensively. Jason Tatum led his team to the Conference Finals. Wasn't perfect. That was pretty up and down. Jimmy Butler, unbelievable in the Bucks series. Pretty normal Jimmy Butler after that for three rounds. So, like, if you have this built-up expectation, like what Jokic did where you kick everyone's ass for four rounds, there's maybe one dude who does that every year. Maybe one. In some years, there's not even a guy who does that. So, like, again, we we got to adjust our expectations here. This isn't NBA 2K. You don't have dudes go out there and play perfect every single night. And when you really get down to it, how many guys... In a down shooting postseason, are gonna give you 29, 9, and 6 on 60% true shooting with above average defense. How many guys? Now, again, like I actually thought this was one of similar, similar to what I was talking about with the LeBron video where I was talking about how like it was one of my favorite postseasons rooting for him, as I watched him as a competitor work through his struggles. Same thing with Kevin Durant. Game three in particular against Denver. Was one of my favorite Kevin Durant games that I've ever watched. And I, you know, I can think of a lot of great Kevin Durant games. And like, for instance, one of my all time faves is uh, game four against, I want to say it was game four against the Cavs in 2018. It was one of the best games I've ever seen a basketball player play, where KD just absolutely picked the Cavs apart as like this point forward passing, making every decision with a live dribble from the top of the key. I think he had a triple-double. I think it was a 40-point triple-double, if I remember correctly. And I remember walking away from that game like, holy shit, I saw two of the greatest games I've ever seen players play in this series. LeBron in game one, Kevin Durant in game four. I can think of a bunch of games like that over Kevin Durant's career. And those are impressive in a different way as they reflect dominance. And I enjoy those performances. But to me, like, as a competitor, I've always appreciated the games where things aren't going well. Where he de- where the command of the game isn't there. But like you have a choice as a player in those situations. What are you going to do? Are you going to just be like, man, I don't have it tonight? Or are you going to be like, shit, man, I- I've got to do something to find a way to win this game? There was a game, game three against Denver... And KD's jumper was broke. It's one for five from three. Missed a boatload of mid-range pull-ups. Had nothing going. But like if you watch the game, you could visibly see KD just pressuring and pressuring and pressuring off the dribble, just forcing the issue to manufacture points by manufacturing rim pressure and making nice kick-out passes, by drawing fouls, by getting to the rim. And in a game where he could not make a damn jump shot, he finished with 39, 9, and 8 in a win against a championship-level team. How many guys in the league right now can give you 39, 9, and 8 at all? Let alone 39, 9, and 8 in a playoff game against a championship-level opponent in a game where his jump shot's not falling. And like I remember after that game thinking, that was awesome. He had nothing going. He had to literally just through sheer force of competitive will find a way to help his team win a game and put up thirty nine nine and eight, and th- that's what I appreciated in general about that postseason. Like, again, it, it-, it shot creation situations in the postseason zero point eight six points per ISO. Ugh, that's not good. Zero point seven three points per post up. That's even worse. His shots weren't falling. In post-up and ISO situations, he was 27 for 75 from the field. And if you ask Kevin Durant, and he's talked about this. He talked about it during his injury. He was obsessed with the concept of one-on-one basketball, just perfecting beating a matchup in individual situations. So KD's bread and butter failed him and he still put up 29-9 and 6 on 60% true shooting. How he had one of his best transition postseasons. He scored 70 points in transition in two rounds. For example, Jimmy Butler had 80 in four rounds. So he manufactured points in transition. He manufactured points by moving without the basketball, coming in off-screen situations he shot 40%. It was deadly attacking closeouts. Like he just found a way to help his team win. And so, again, like, like I said earlier, in, in summary, I think KD is one of those guys, like LeBron, where it, it, it really the older generation just in general, where we're just so quick to try to embrace the new and we're so numb to what they're capable of that we just assume because they're down a level from their individual peaks that they're not at the same level as the guys above them. But I think it's just flawed perspective. And if we actually really looked at these dudes and viewed them as anonymous, like just this playoff run, which we have all agreed is below Kevin Durant's normal level. If that was Brandon Ingram, if Brandon Ingram averaged 29-9-6 and on 60% true shooting, shot 45% effective field goal percentage on pull-up jump shots, and had a 39-9-8 and game, Against Denver in the second round, we'd be leaving the postseason talking about whether or not he was like capable of being the best player in the world. Like we'd be celebrating the dude, but because it's Kevin Durant and because we've seen him hoist the trophy twice and because we've seen him have all these big playoff moments, we're just like, ah, not the same KD. And and, and I and I think I think that. It's been hopefully one of the themes that I've gotten across over the course of the last couple of years. Don't be in a rush to displace guys that are proven and that are still doing it at that level. Because chances are, if they end up in a playoff series this year, they're going to be more confident, more comfortable in that situation than their peers because they've done it so many damn times. One thing I would say, again, like I mentioned earlier, that he could still improve at this phase of his career is just finding a way to attempt more shots at the rim. I think KD is very aggressive as a scorer, but I also think he's extremely picky about when he shoots. And I think that's a good quality. I think that's what helps him be very easy to plug and play into other teams. Like, you don't have to worry about KD taking shots outside of the flow of the offense. He's one of the unique players in the league in his ability to be super aggressive, but in the flow. And so it doesn't really disrupt the flow. Whereas, like, if Luca decided to be super aggressive in a quarter, it would be kind of like ugly as he just dribbled the ball off the court and shot every single time, right? Whereas like KD, he could take six shots and 10 possessions, but like two of them would be coming off a wide pin down. One would be on a post up. Another would be in pick and roll. Uh, Two of them would be ISOs. One would be on the live dribble on the wing. Another one would be kind of like a face up ISO. And you'd be like, man, like all six of those were different. Four of them came off of action. One was in transition, whatever it is. There's just so much variety in what he does. It's easy to plug in. Right. But I mean, this is the part where I see an area of opportunity. His rim efficiency is outrageously good. Like. 79% in the regular season at the rim, in the restricted area. He was 10 for 11 on shots in the restricted area against Denver. 10 for 11. That's 91%. So at a certain point, I'd like to see him be a little less picky and just get more shots up at the rim. You know, most, most of his peers are around like 70, 75%. And it's because they're taking a lot of shots down there. And again, like we talk about a lot, like missed shots at the rim carry residual value, provided that you run back on defense. And that is, it occupies the rim protector. And when you occupy the rim protector, you do a lot of different things for your team. You're either going to open up an offensive rebound opportunity, or if you're reading the defense at a higher level. As soon as the rim protector comes over, the guy from the, the low man out of the weak side corner is coming to tag the the big man to box him out, and now you have kick-out opportunities for threes. Rim pressure comes with all sorts of residual positive effects. And I think in general, like on that Suns team, that's going to be one of their specific weaknesses. And so I think that's one thing I'd like to see KD do a little bit more here in the, lat- the later phase of his career is just, just – just force it in there a little bit more. And and just for a couple of different reasons, not just the residual values we talked about, but also because of that simple concept of heels versus toes on defense, which is more theoretical than in the actual footwork because most defenders are up on their toes as much as they can be. But the point is, is like as a defender, either prioritizing being up on the pull-up jump shot or being prepared for retreat steps to try to cut people off on the drive. Demonstrate more of a willingness to drive. The defender's going to be more on their heels, so to speak, at least favoring backward steps, which is going to open up your opportunities for off the, off the dribble jump shots. And we've seen his separation on pull up jump shots hasn't been as good in the postseason because guys are sitting on it a little bit. And so, again, like this is, I'm uh, uh, this is like, it's one of those things where I, I do think that when you're as good at making all the other shots the way that he is that even without the rim pressure, there's still a certain amount of offensive success. It's just one small area of opportunity. So here's the last thing I'll say. KD has been the best volume scorer in the NBA since he left Golden State, as we established earlier. So you think one of two things. You either think that his last two postseasons are just outlier shot performances, or you think that's the new normal. I tend to think they're outlier shot performances. Why? Because he shoots 60 damn percent on him in the regular season, effective field goal percentage. And that's not fluky. That's real freaking basketball. So, again, you, you have an option here. You can choose to write him off, or you can believe in the larger sample size of what this dude's capable of. And accept the realities of that weird Nets team after James Harden had left coming off of an injury in 2022. Or 2023, a Suns team that traded away all of their depth for KD, then lost Chris Paul, and it basically was KD and Devin Booker and like random dudes like Terrence Ross and Landry Shaman, who were fine, but end of the bench guys, who were having to play significant minutes in the postseason for the Suns. And I'm not trying to make excuses, because here's the thing. This year is a no-excuse year for the Suns. You brought it, you converted Chris Paul into Bradley Beal. You made a bunch of really smart role-player signings. Eric Gordon's a really good player to help in that situation. You don't want Nobby, a really good player to help in those situations. Chimezi Metu, a, a good try-hard forward. The, uh, 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 Eubanks from Portland, a good try-hard forward. They have loaded up on guys that are going to be able to give them more competent play around them. And a much more available and higher ceiling, uh, a higher floor two player in Bradley Beal to replace Chris Paul. So here's the thing. If we get to the postseason this year and the Suns underachieve again, and Kevin Durant can't make pull-up jump shots again, then I think we can have a serious conversation. Because that would be three postseasons in a row where he underachieved in the postseason. It would be uh, uh, a roster that actually should have a certain higher ceiling. I'm with you at that point. But I'm a big believer in the benefit of the doubt. And we have like a decade of Kevin Durant basketball that should give us the benefit of the doubt to overlook a couple of rough postseason series relative to what his ceiling is when he was that great during the regular season. So again, you guys are welcome to write Kevin Durant off if you want to. I'm not going to be one of those guys. I haven't met number four this year. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. We will be back tomorrow with number three.